Was worship not awesome? That music not great? I was feeling it. That was good. That's good stuff. All right, so again, we are, so today we're wrapping up a series called Keep the Change. Keep the change. And for those of you in the room that have been here for the series, you're like, okay, we know what's going on. For those of you that are new, you are not part of the series. You're going to be like, come on, man. In fact, if you brought a friend today, you're going to be like, he chose to preach about this on Baptism Sunday. Well, he didn't decide to preach about it. In fact, I wrestled with God earlier this week about it. I actually wrestled with him yesterday about it. Not like wrestle Jacob, break my hip kind of wrestle, but wrestled with it nonetheless a little bit because I was like, Lord, we're going to, you know, this whole series is talking about money and, and, and we've got baptisms tomorrow and I think I just want to change the, the sermon and, and kind of move it around. And, and he was very clear in saying, no, 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 this is what we're going to talk about. I was like, all right, then that's what we're going to talk about. So if you're in the room, I firmly believe God has something to say to you about what the topic is today. Because the topic we're talking about today is how we manage our money. And at first, as soon as I say that, everybody's like, I don't feel like that belongs in church. I don't really want to hear about that. I'm not interested in that. I just don't even, I mean, come on, Brandon, money is between, my money's between myself and my pocketbook, myself, my Excel spreadsheet, myself and my wife or my husband. It certainly not, doesn't involve God at all. Um, and, and I really don't like it when the church starts to talk about it. So if you've been in that camp, and I was in that camp for a long, long time until somebody taught me about it, I felt that way too. And I understand where you're coming from. But the reason we have to cover it and the reason we have to talk about it is because it's actually part of your relationship with God. That money and how you manage money is part of your relationship with God. So if you're a believer in the room, this is for you. This is going to be specifically for you. If you're a non-believer in the room, this is not going to be quite as much applicable to you, except the principles that I'm going to teach are actually going to be good for you. So maybe you just don't want to do it for the church, or maybe you're not doing it for any other reason, except that it's just good for you and good for your soul to manage and to handle your finances this way. And I always have to start this way because I want to make sure everybody understands the whole purpose of this, is I am not asking for money, okay? You saw the plates go by. We ain't bringing them back around, okay? So everybody take a deep breath. Okay, relax. We ain't bringing the plates back around. I'm not going to put the QR codes you can give up there. You're not going to hear me come down and tell you to say it in faith. Might there be one more, Lord, and set the buckets? We're not doing any of that, okay? We're not doing that because that's not the purpose. The purpose of this series, the purpose of today is I want to free you from financial constraints. I want to free you from essentially what our theme verse is. And our theme verse is Matthew 6, 24, says this, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or you will love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. And then he says this, and this is the part we get so uncomfortable about that we don't like. You cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus actually says this in Luke, in Matthew, and in Mark. So it's something that's key that with his disciples, when they were recording down what was said, they all realized this is important. We need to write this down. So that means he probably taught it a couple times. And here's what I know. You don't want to be ruled by money especially if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, I say ruled by money, and you should just like, oh, no, I don't want to be ruled by, no, mm -mm, that's not me. I, I already have a ruler of my life. I already have a king of my life, and it's not money. It's actually Jesus. And if you're a non-believer in the room, and you're somebody who, a person not of faith, that you're interested, maybe you're not there yet, you just sit back. Here's what I know about you. You don't want to be ruled by anything. You want to make the decisions. 
You don't want your things to control you. You don't want your desires or your appetites to control you. You don't want those types of things. You want to be in control and make your own decisions. So when Jesus says this, he's speaking to both the believer and the non-believer, the people who are of faith and the people who are not of faith, that he knows for fact and certainly don't want to be ruled by anything. So in order to get where we're going today, I got to kind of do a quick review. So we learned in week one, we learned in week one that we are managers of God's money, that we are managers of God's money. There's not this sense of that it's all mine and I can do whatever I want with it. It's just simply not true that we are managers. And we learned in the parable of the shrewd manager where God kind of says to the person who doesn't pay attention to their money and doesn't care and they think it's all for them and all for their consumption, God says, that's not a wise way to live. And then we learned last week that in order to be good managers of God's money, because if we're managers, we want to be good managers. Nobody likes to be, nobody wants to be a bad manager. That in order to be a good manager of God's money, that means we have to prioritize the things God prioritizes. And that means we're, we have to change and flip the script. We have to give first, save second, live on the rest. Give first, save second, live on the rest. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you know what give means. It means giving to the church, prioritizing the, the things of God's kingdom, and I'm going to continue talking about that. If you're a non-believer in the room and you hear that, I just want you to realize that the reason why Jesus says to give first is because if you don't give first, or if you notice that right when you start to go to give first, it's a little harder to let go of that money, it's a little harder to let go of that check, then maybe money or things or possessions or your appetites have your heart and that they control the decisions you make, which is why Jesus says the way you make sure that money does not control your life and that possessions don't control your life and things like that is you give some of it away first. And by doing that, you ensure greed does not get a root in your heart. You're able to push it away and say, no, 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 greed. You're not the master of me. You're not the ruler of me. I decide those types of things. And again, we learned that it's important to talk in percentages because good managers talk in percentages. And last week, if you remember, the action point was to make a plan. That in order to give and give responsibly, we have to make a plan because we want to give, right? Build God's kingdom. We want to save, build my kingdom. And then we're going to live on the rest, buy the new iPhone, buy the new watch, buy the car, buy the thing, right? But we're going to go ahead and decide ahead of time the percentage of our income that we're going to live on. Because believe it or not, and this is just true, you're going to live on a percentage of your income. You are. Some of you is going to be 70%. Maybe you went home and you made a plan last week. We tracked it the first week. We made a plan last week. You sit back and realize, I'm living on 130% of my income. I'm amazing. The idea is to get a lower number. It's like golf. You want a lower number. Okay? So if you track your money, you want a lower percentage that you're living on, not a higher percentage, okay? Because it's just good for you. You can put things away. Now, the question I often give or receive is, Brandon, why, why do we give first? I mean, come on, why do, we, why do we give first? And some of that's because we want to control greed and make sure greed doesn't get a, gain a foothold in our life or doesn't become a root in our life. So we have to manage that and we have to decide ahead of time that, hey, I'm going to give first. But here's the other thing giving does, and this is important, that giving first places God first in your finances and it opens the door for him to work in your finances. That placing God first in your finances means that you're opening the door for God to work in your finances. So placing him first says, Lord, it's all yours. Go ahead, have your way, whatever you want to do. And for a lot of us, we go, I don't want God in my finances. I would argue that you do because you've probably said the prayer before. God, I don't know how I'm going to make the rent. God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Not sure how the business is going to work. 
not sure if this is going to work out with the kids. You know, I've got this extra kid. I don't know. It's expensive. God, like you've probably, especially related to money, had that prayer time before. Now, maybe it wasn't early in the morning, lighting a candle with your Bible open kind of prayer time. Maybe it was on your knees begging, God, I don't know how I'm going to put gas in the car and get to work kind of prayer time. I don't know. Both of those are prayer times. So maybe, but I'm convinced that many of us in the room, in fact, have probably done that before. So you would like God in your finances. I know I would like God in my finances. And the way that that works is you have to place him first. You throw open the doors and say, Lord, priorities in order, you're first. In fact, Jesus teaches in this, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, but seek first his, what's that word? Kingdom. Kingdom. His kingdom, not your kingdom. Seek first his kingdom, and that makes every one of us go, oh, I don't like that, Jesus. I want my thing, the new big thing, the real shiny thing. I want, I want that. So he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, when he's speaking there, right before this, he's talking about all the needs people have. He's talking about shelter. He's talking about food. He's talking about clothes on your back. And Jesus says, if you place God first in the world, if you place God first in your world, that everything else just kind of works out. Everything else will begin to fall into place. Now, notice he didn't say it would be really easy. That wasn't in there. And notice he didn't say you're going to get that brand new Bugatti you've been praying for. He didn't say that either. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you that he's going to give you the new Bugatti, okay? But I am going to tell you that when you place him first in your finances, when you place him first in your finances, you're throwing open the door, and you've also noticed, I have, that everything just kind of falls into the correct order when I place God first. Here's the thing. This doesn't just apply to your finances. When you place God first in your life in every area of your life, all the areas of your life start to fall into place. And those of us that have walked one way of life and then have decided to walk the following Jesus way of life can tell you firsthand, I know I can, that when things were out of order the most was when it was chaotic the most, was when I took God out of the picture. When I put God, maybe not even completely out of the picture, maybe I put him second, Maybe I put him third. Maybe I put him fourth. But he just wasn't first. And let me tell you, teach you something about God. He can't only be first. He can't be second. It's not how he is. It's not how it works. So when we invite God in, we place him first. And when we do that, we begin to see things kind of get in order in our life. And again, many of you have experienced that. You remember the times when things got crazy. And you remember the chaos that you lived in before. You remember the experiences you have. Maybe you're sitting there right now, and you are in chaos. And when you kind of unpack it and you think through it, you're like, you know what? I, I, I don't have God first. And things are kind of out of order. And it seems like the scales are all wonky and everything's not working the right way. And all of a sudden, it seems that the light bulb goes off. If he's not first, how are you inviting him in? Because it's all... He knows how to be. And let me be very clear. As this relates to your finances, I struggle with this, y'all. I'll be the first to tell you I struggle with this because your boy likes new things. <laughs> I do. I love stuff. In fact, can we just have a holy moment? How many people love things? Anybody? It's okay. We're together. My name's Brandon, and I'm your friend, okay? We're friends. It's okay. We'll have a meeting after this, and we'll all share our story. 
But I do. I like things. I like new things. I like new cars. We got into an uh, accident with our van a couple weeks ago, and we got, uh, we, you know, we got a new rental, right? So we got the, it, and of course they send you the nicest one they have, and you've got this really nice rental, and thing sucker's got a sunroof in it, and it's got, and it's a van too. So it's like not even a van. It's a spaceship. It's not a van anymore. <laughs> It's not a van anymore. It's a, it's, it's, it's a spaceship. But it's got all the bells and whistles and everything else. Y'all, it had vents, cooling vents in your seat. It had cooling. I ain't making that up. It had cooling both in your back and on your tush. So in the summer when it was really hot, you didn't get like, you know, so it's, it was amazing. <laughs> Top of the line, especially if you're a little beefier like me, it gets hot in the summer. So having that, it was amazing. And I loved it because I like new things. Don't get me wrong. But I can't afford that thing. I just can't. I can't afford that thing. But it was so nice. So I understand. And I started doing the mental math immediately. Well, you know, I could probably afford that. And I'm going to have to be honest with you guys. So can I be honest for just a second? I'll be honest for a second. I said, you know, I could probably afford that if I stop, if I stop giving. I could probably afford that if I, if I just go ahead and just cut it in half. If I just go ahead and do that. Then I had to stop and I'd say, wait a second. No, no, no. Jesus told me to seek first his kingdom. And then everything else will be given to me and everything else will be taken and placed in the proper order. So the question I often get to and I ask is like, okay, well, have I built his kingdom first? And again, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should ask that question. Before you write that check, before you buy that new thing, you should ask that question honestly. Have I built his kingdom first? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, the next thing I would challenge you with is to ask the question, is it all about me? Have I given any of it away? Is greed the controller of my life and control everything I do? As soon as it comes in, does it go out? Because if I'm living that way, even if you're not a Jesus follower, that's not a good way to live. So then naturally, the next question people run into is, okay, I want to make God happy, right? Amen. Everybody wants to make God happy? Amen. We all want to make God happy. The next question I run into is, all right, Brandon, I'm down to give first. I'm there. I'm ready. How much do I give? That often comes up, and it's one of the things everybody sits back and goes, okay, I want to know the number. Somebody just give me the number. What is it? Like, is it $10, $15, $20? I mean, is there like, is, does it work kind of like if I max it out? Like if I give like $100,000 over a period of my lifetime, does, do then like the, does the number go down? Is there an interest rate, Lord? <laughs> Is there like, come on, how does this work? Because, I mean, come on, there's, got, there's a lot of words in that book that you read us every Sunday, Brandon. There's got to be a number in there somewhere to help me figure this out. Believe it or not, there is. There is a number associated with how you please God, except it's probably not the number you're thinking of. And it's probably not the number that you've experienced or the number that you've heard before. So as we get started today, I want to, we're going to be going to Luke chapter 21. So you guys can flip to Luke chapter 21 right there. You know, you pull out your phone. Follow along on your phone. If you have your paper Bible, go ahead and bust that puppy open and get to, to, to Luke chapter 21. And I'm going to cover some context because this is important to really feel the weight of, this, of what's about to happen right here. So this is the Passion Week. We have jumped in. So this is the last week Jesus is alive. So let me brush you up on the Passion Week. So Sunday, everybody remembers Palm Sunday? And they come in, they're like, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're all excited and they're all hooping and hollering. Everybody's so down for it, right? And it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus as he's coming in. They expect him to essentially take over Jerusalem. That's what they're expecting. They're not expecting the suffering king. They're expecting the warrior. That's what they want. They want another David. They want another Joshua. But really, they were about to get the suffering servant. But that's what they're expecting. So everybody's paying total attention to Jesus. 
Passover also means that everybody from the surrounding area has come that week. It's a big deal. Come to offer sacrifices at the temple and do all sorts of other things. So it is busy, which is part of the reason the Jewish religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus, because he's causing commotion during the Passover. They couldn't have that. That was a problem. So they had to take care of him and get him out of the way. And then this week, Jesus is teaching on the Temple Mount, and he's covering lots of different things. He's covering lots of different questions, and he's answering whole bunches of different things. In fact, this is one of the places, one of the many places where we see the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, because Jesus is not pulling any punches. He's setting the religious leaders and everybody else straight, and it's, there's a sense in which this last week, there's urgency. He seems to reiterate a lot of what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he seems to really drill down hard, and his language gets a little bit more harsher, just a little bit, than what we saw before then, because there seems to be an urgency in Jesus this last week, as if he knows that what he's about to go through is not going to be something that he can easily return, and that his disciples actually have to carry on the message of him afterwards. So he kind of knows that this is what's going to happen. So he's kind of preparing. He's getting ready. He's kind of getting everybody, circling the troops. Hey, guys, this is what we're going to do. Now, along the way, some people got in the way. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, and so on, those people got in the way. In fact, Jesus came into the temple one time, and he was so frustrated with these individuals, my boy started flipping tables, okay? He was flipping tables inside of the temple. Could you imagine if I just walked in and started flipping tables inside of the church? Somebody would, the safety team would handcuff me and take me out because that's crazy, right? Like nobody do that. But Jesus walks in and he's not afraid to do it. And he's doing it and he's flipping it. And it's not a problem, right? Like Jesus is just so offensive this last week to the religious leaders and to people who think they're close with God, but really they're not. And then he's circling the disciples saying, hey, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what we're going to do. And remember what I said. Remember, seek first my kingdom, right? And I got a picture of you, uh, for you guys to where you can see this is the Temple Mount. This is where Jesus was teaching. Okay, So where he was probably teaching was right in this section right up there where the double doors are. He's probably right up there as they're getting ready to go in. The main part of the sanctuary and temple area is in the front there, the big white part of it. This is called the Temple or Herod's Temple. He built it um, to appease the Jews. That's a history lesson for a different sermon. But Jesus is teaching, and there's a lot of people coming in and out of this time. Okay, Lots of people. So everybody can see it, and that's exactly what he wants. He wants everybody to notice it, everybody to be aware about what he's about to teach. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 1, if you're there, say word. Word, word of the Lord. As Jesus looked up, so remember, he's teaching at the, at the Temple Mount, and you got to imagine tons of people, hundreds of people coming in, shuffling in and out. You guys remember strip malls? Anybody remember a strip mall right before Amazon? How busy it was during the Christmas season? Picture that. I just dated myself. I'm sorry. Picture that. That's what you're looking for is how busy it is. And Jesus looked up. He saw the rich people, the people who had extra, the people who had clothes and the people who had a shelter over their head, um, the people who had a place to lay their head down, uh, the people who had food. They weren't worried about any of those things. The, the rich people, he says to which all of us in, in this context are probably the rich people. So he looks up. He saw the rich people. This is not a parable. This is a real story. Putting their gifts into the temple treasury. So as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich people putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Now, the temple treasury was a combination of nine different chests, 
And you could basically, instead of offering the sacrifice, you could offer money. And you could just go and do a money exchange. It wasn't necessarily in the law. This was something the religious leaders decided they could do. So they would go, and in this big chest is, are these coins, because that's how they dealt with money back then. There's constant coins going in and in and in. You got the rich people, which is everybody else who has extra, coming onto the Temple Mount. And of course, because this is what you do, you want God's attention, put more into the chest, right? I mean, if you want the priest's attention, and they got to imagine the Pharisees are out there looking to see, oh yeah, there comes Bill. Mm, Bill got them dollar bills, y'all. And he throws it in, right? They're paying attention. They're looking. They're like, hmm, okay. And there's guards everywhere, so everybody, everybody's looking. And the rich are going in there, and Jesus looks up and says, hey, guys, pay attention. Somebody's coming. And then he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Now, the rich are coming in. They got handfuls of it, right? They're offering, you know, they're doing what they need to do. They're trying to gain favor in the temple, some of them. Some of them are doing it honestly, but there's people that are trying to gain favor in the temple. And then this this little widow, it's almost like Jesus goes, shh. I see that. Did you see her? Older lady shuffling along. You didn't see that? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. You missed it. You missed it. And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh man. This poor widow, he says, has put in more than all the others. All the others. To which I sit back and the disciples are like, no, she didn't. You didn't see Bill? He had a handful of coins. She did not put more in. And Jesus is like, no, 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 she did. She did, because here's why. All these people, he says, gave their gifts out of their wealth, out of their extra. The extra they had, God wasn't first. God was just somewhere in there, you know, kind of after, after the car payment, after the house, after this, after that, after the new thing, right? So they, they gave out of their wealth, but she gave, she gave out of her poverty and put in all she had to live on. And Jesus' point was the disciples, right? He's like, oh, Amazing. Why is it so impressive? Because God had her heart. God had her heart. Because Jesus said before in an earlier teaching, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And all of a sudden, he says, wait a second, this woman, this, this poor widow, she gave everything. And Jesus is like, guys, that's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That's it. Because it's not about the amount. It's about what's going on in here that matters. It's not about the amount. And the rich people had plenty, and they were dropping big coins, but Jesus wasn't impressed by that. What impressed Jesus, and what impresses Jesus, and what impresses our Heavenly Father, it's not the amount of the check that you write. It's not the amount of dollar bills that you place in the offering. It's not the amount that you give away to charity. That's not impressive. What's impressive is the heart. What will cause Jesus to stop everything and get everybody's attention, say, hold on, guys, shh, did you just see that? What stops him to do that is when the heart is in a place where you say, God, you first, and whatever it is. Now, notice she gave all she had. That wasn't a percentage. For those of you that have been part of the church for a period of time, many of you, you've heard of something called the tithe. You've heard of that before, the tithe. And even here, sometimes in churches, we're going to continue with tithes and offerings, that kind of phrase. Now, the tithe simply means a tenth, okay? just means a tenth. It simply means a tenth. 
And you've probably heard in the Christian circles, if you've been in church any period of time, if you've not been in church any period of time, you're going to hear this and you're going to go, those Christians are crazy. And that's okay. We understand. We are kind of nuts. But anyway, (laughs) the tithe was, you've heard before, give 10% probably, and the other 90% is yours. That's probably what you've heard from Christian teaching and and, uh, associated with giving. Um, And that is a concept, and that is a concept, except it's not fully accurate because it takes from the Old Testament the idea of the tithe. In order to do that, we have to understand what the tithe was. And the tithe, a lot of people think, was just 10% off the top of your income goes to the church, and that's that. Well, that's not how it worked in the Old Testament. 10% of the income for the ancient Israelites went to the Levites and to the priests, That's to pay them so they can live and exist and they can minister and be in between God and the people. That was their role. So 10% went to them. Another 10% went to the festivals. So every every month when they receive their paycheck, right, 10% to the Levites and to the priests, 10% to the festivals because they had multiple festivals throughout the year and it was a big community builder. So this was significant to God. So God mandates these things in the law. He puts it in Leviticus and in the Exodus story and in Numbers. So you sit back and you go, okay, those two are good. And then there was a 10% charity tithe. That's how they fed the people who didn't have food. That's how they took care of people and the widows and the orphans and people like that. That happened every third year. And even foreigners could receive that one. So if they were from another land, they could come in, they would get part of that. And that was every third year. So when you average it out yearly, the ancient Israelites did not give 10%. Yearly, the ancient Israelites gave 23% of their total income. So who's in favor of adopting the tithe? Everybody in favor say aye. Aye. Oh, dang. Okay, we're done. (laughs) I was expecting nothing. Amen, Lord. Pass the buckets, John. I'm just kidding. I was expecting silence. You guys got me. Some of you really holy people in here. I wasn't ready for that. There's a couple people like, let me scoot out real quick. I'm not interested in that. But that's, that's what it would be if you were to institute the tithe, like the actual tithe. If you were going to institute the tithe, that's what it would look like. And then everything we've learned, however, Jesus never mentions any of those. You know who else doesn't mention any of those? Paul. James, the brother of Jesus, doesn't mention any of those. John, the apostles, they don't mention any, any of that. Now, they, they do mention generous giving, absolutely. They don't mention the tithe, and that's very interesting Now, there's a sense in which they still tithed because the temple was still around. But instead of tithing, New Testament Christians, and this is going to be freeing for some of you and incredibly challenging for others of you. New Testament Christianity was actually built on something and charged with something called generosity. Generosity. Grace-filled generosity. If it was as easy, and this is just the way it is, if it was as easy as a 10%, you could do 10%, you could move on and never deepen your relationship with God and then expect him to move exactly the way you want him to move. Why? Because he's a cosmic vending machine. You put in your 10%, Lord, where's the blessing? And that's simply not how it works. It's not a flat number or a percentage. Because in some instances in the New Testament, like this widow, she gives everything, and that was impressive to Jesus. And in other instances, there's individuals who, could, who gave 10%, but they couldn't part with their money, if you've heard of the rich young ruler. He says, I've kept all the law, and the law was the 23% tithing. And then Jesus says, well, go ahead and part with your riches. And he says, I can't do that. Because it's the heart of the matter that works.
Jesus reflected this in all of his teaching. That it's all God's. It's all God's. And none of it's ours. That we are managers and we are stewards of what God has given us. For a lot of us, that makes us uncomfortable. No, it's not. I've worked for my money. Brandon, I've worked so hard for my money. Hey, me too. I understand. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. But once you understand, once you understand that it's not yours and you're a manager of it, that changes the way that you view it. Because nobody's going to be able to take it with you. You can't take it with you. When you die, it's not going with you. We'll put it in the grave with you, I guess, if that's what you want to do. But that ain't going nowhere. You're going to send it. You're going to give it to somebody else because it's not yours. Owners take things with them. You came in here. You brought your car. You own your car. You're taking your car. You're, you're leaving in your car. When you die, you're not taking your money with you. It's staying here. And then God's going to use it for something else. So, and this is so, so challenging. So it says, Paul says this in, second, in the church to Corinth. So he's writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, remember this. This is important. He wouldn't say, remember this, if he wanted you to forget it. You know what I mean? Like, kind of, what is <laughs> Okay? So, he makes it real easy. The Bible makes it real easy for us. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, pause for a second. If you're a Jesus follower, this makes perfect sense to you. You remember what Jesus talked about, about sowing into his kingdom, preparing his kingdom, doing that kind of stuff. You're aware of that. If you're a non-Jesus follower, you go, that don't apply to me, except it does. It does. Because if you sow as a person who's not a follower and you hold it all close to you, and you demand it all, it's yours, you're not going to give any out, you're not going to prep anything, then hey, when you hit times of need, not many people are going to be there for you because you've held it all for yourself. So this principle applies not only to Christians, but also applies to the non-believer too. And he says, not only that, that you're planting a seed, that when you give generously and you give out of the place of grace, and let the Lord decide what to give. When you give that, he says, you're planting a seed, a seed that you have no idea. You don't even know what could happen to it. But all I know, Paul says, is when you plant and you, and you sow generously, oh, man, the apostle, this is Paul. Hey, you're going to reap generous rewards. That don't mean you're going to get your new Audi either. Don't mean that. But he talks about reaping generously. Remember here, the main thing, the main idea is the gospel. That when you plant, people's lives will be changed, make an eternal difference that we talked about in week one. Verse seven says this. He says, each of you. Now, I want you, there's going to be a section in this verse. If you have your Bibles, I want you to highlight it, okay? I want you to circle it, okay? And it's not going to be one, trust me, you have not highlighted this one before. A preacher has not told you to highlight this one, guaranteed, okay? Guaranteed the preacher's not told you to highlight this one. But this one is probably one of the most significant when it comes to dealing with money and how and what you should give. Verse 7 says this, each of you should give. So if you're a believer, should give. Okay, So you should give something. Should give what you have decided in your heart to give. I didn't make that up. That's in there. So the part I want you to highlight is decided in your heart to give. And some of you are like, Brandon, 
come on, no, I've heard that I'm supposed to give 10%. And then, I mean, come on, how are you supposed to run the church if everybody can just decide what they want to give? Well, because I have, I have a heavenly father that I believe he's going to speak to everybody when they ask. Because for some of you, when it says decided in your heart, that's not just in your heart. There's a, the, the Greek word really means a, a conversation with you in, in, in God is what Paul's alluding to, especially if you read the context afterwards and the context before he's talking about holiness. It's like you got to decide in your heart what to give. And then he continues, he says, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly under compulsion. So if you hear anything I said today and you're like, oh man, I got to give $20 to make God happy, don't. He doesn't want it. He's not interested. That's not the point. The point is God loves a cheerful giver, that it's the heart of the matter. And then you've, you apply that to what Jesus said with the, with the widow. That means she cheerfully gave all she had. Whew, that changes the game. That switches from it just being a simple 10%. If it's a simple 10%, it's easy, no problem, we're moving on, right? But it's totally different if you sit back and say, wait a second, God, I have to do some work with you often, and you have to adjust my heart. And when you sit in a position of, it's all yours anyway, God, and then you sit back and you go, Lord, what would you have me give? What would you have me give? In order for that to work, it requires, it requires a relationship with God. It requires a relationship with God. If we just told you give 10% and you've made God happy and you move on, hey, you can do that without having a relationship with God. But this verse that Paul's calling the, the first Corinthian, the Corinthian church to in the first century, that verse, that's far more challenging. Because here's the thing. You, God might only call you to 4%. God might call you to 20. And some of you are like, I'm not praying then. He might call you to 30. I've met an individual that God has called 50 to 60%, and I can't express the joy at which they give with. It, it, it astounds me. It builds my faith every time I see that. And they're deeply involved in the church, and it, it's amazing to see what they're able to do. And they never ask for a penny back, and we offer a money-back guarantee. Never, never, never. Every time I talk to him, he's never, he's never, not one time, and it blows my mind, he's never like, oh man, I wish I had that money back. And we're talking thousands of dollars per month. Actually, tens of thousands of dollars per month. And never ask for it back. Not once. And, and, and I sit back and I wonder, wow, that's amazing. And Paul continues in verse 12. He speaks more on the significance of generosity. And then in verse 12, he kind of wraps it up for us. He says, this service, the service of grace, graceful generosity, of letting the Lord speak and work through you, that service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, to which I say first century, Okay, or uh, 21st century, we're going to jump out of then, jump into here now. So I'm telling you that this service that you perform not only supplies for the Lord's people, you know, it doesn't just build buildings like we did here to, to, so people can hear the gospel, doesn't just help women that, have, that need diapers when they've decided to keep their, their kid and they decided not to have an abortion, doesn't just help that. 
um, doesn't just help create happy tummies facilities in Guatemala that uh, ensure that kids get a good education and good food and learn about God all at the same time. The money you give doesn't just do that. It doesn't just save um, people who are stuck in, in sex trafficking rings in the Philippines through our friends at Reach. It doesn't just do that. It actually does more. Paul says, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So it doesn't, this is the great thing. When you give, and you give with a generous heart, and you give the way that Paul talks about it and the way Jesus modeled it, which is grace-driven, grace-driven. You're praying about it. You're asking God, God, what would you have of me? God, what would you request? God, you're in charge. You're the driver. I'm just the vehicle. Whatever you want. When you begin to give that way, Paul says, not only are you providing for the Lord's people, building buildings, baptizing 10 people, saving kids, like you're not just doing that. You're also expressing your thanks to your heavenly father for everything he's done for you. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way you can express thanks. There's tons of other different ways you can express thanks. But for many of us, we think of it as a transaction. God's not interested in a transaction. That's why he says it's grace-driven that you decide in your heart to give. So what now? That's the question. Like, okay, Brandon, I'm there. I'm all for it. I want to do that. What does that mean? It's a real, real hard step. In fact, you got to write it down. It's really, really important. And I want you to pray. I want you to pray. When you say, what's next for me? Look, I can't tell you the number. I could give you a percentage if I want, but that's not going to help you. That's not going to deepen your relationship with God. That's not going to allow God to stretch you. That's not going to allow God to build your faith. I want God to build your faith. So you need to pray, and you need to get with God, and you need to say, Lord, this is what I'm giving. What do, you, do you want more? Do you want less? What's going on here? And then listen to me. This is important. Everybody, don't miss this. You do what God tells you to do. You don't do what a preacher says. You don't do anything else. You do what God tells you to do. If God says 1%, 1%. If God says 90, 90%. You do whatever it is that God calls you to do. And if you're a person of faith, he's going to stretch your faith. He's done it with Leah and I. We've, we've done this. We hit, now I always tell everybody, if you can, try to get to 10% because that's a good solid. My pastor teaches 10, 10, 80. 10% give, 10% save, live on the 80%. It's a good model to go off of if you don't have anything. But we hit 10% and we started coasting. I was like, oh, we're good. We made it. We made it to the 10%. This is amazing. And then God was like, I want a little more. And I was like, no. <laughs> Stop. How am I supposed to get the new thing if you want more? He's like, well, I want you to build my kingdom. I'm like, Lord, I'm a pastor. What more do you want? <laughs> He's like, I want your heart. Because <sighs> where your treasure is there, your heart is also. I want to know that you're leading with an open hand. So I want to see that you're able to do that. And I was like, all right, Lord. What's the number? What's the number? And we live that way. And every so often we revisit it. Any, especially any time that we, Leah or I receive a raise or we change jobs, we reevaluate it. We go, okay, Lord, what is it? What would you have me do? What percentage is this? So if you feel and you hear from the Lord and he says something in the future and it's not 10%, don't you dare let anybody shame you for that. 
Don't you, don't, if you hear somebody say, if you're not giving 10%, God's going to curse the rest, you turn that TV off. That's not true. Because God was blessing us before we were financially able to do 10%. I can tell you from experience that's not true. But I can tell you that you miss out on a blessing if you're not obedient to whatever it is that he's called you to. In fact, these 10 baptisms, it's funny, in my notes I have seven. That's not accurate. It's 10 now. These 10 baptisms we're going to go celebrate after service is evidence of the harvest because some people, some people that you may not even ever know their names, gave to this church and planted a seed that they may not even know. Some, to be honest, some of them have gone to be with the Lord. But they planted a seed that helped get to where we are now and help somebody hear the gospel. And those 10 baptisms are, are evidence of what God can do when his people are obedient. So again, my call for you, and I think the apostles' call for you, is to pray. When you go home, don't do it here, right? You can do it here. But go home. Week one, we talked about the importance of tracking it. Week two, we talked about the importance of making a plan. This week, I want you to go home and pray about it. And I want you to take your plan. I want you to say, God, is this your plan? You've built it, right? You've done the work. You've got the framework here. Now take it to him and say, is this your plan? Is this, what, is, is this, what you, is this good? Is this what you want, Lord? And then help me be obedient when it happens. You will be blown away. You will be blown away at what God will do in your life and with a little bit when you decide to plant and to sow generously. So with that, I would love to pray for you. Father, thank you.